Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring dreaming and embodied imagination. My guest is Robert Bosnick who is a Jungian psychoanalyst with 40 years of clinical experience. He graduated from the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich in 1977. He is author of A Little Course in Dreams, which has been something of a bestseller, Embodiment, Creative Imagination in Medicine, Art, and Travel, Christopher's Dreams, Dreaming and Living with AIDS, tracks in the wilderness of dreaming, and he's even written a four-volume novel called Red Sulphur, an alchemical novel. Robert is based in Australia, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Robert. It's a pleasure to see you once again. Yes, it is. We'll be talking about dreaming and embodied imagination. I know embodied imagination is, is a term really specific to your work. It's, it's what you do. So at first thought, one might think, gee, what could that possibly have to do with dreaming? But I know that it has a lot to do with dreaming and maybe everything to do with dreaming. So perhaps you could explain the connection. Yes. Um, well, embodied imagination um, actually began in um, 1913 when uh, Jung had a lot of imagery that he um, that he was experiencing and was very disconcerted by, and he let himself drop into the imagination, into the images. So he fell into the images. He fell along a rock wall and he kept falling down and then he ended up with his feet in the mud. So his first experience of the imagination was embodied through his body, not through his mind, but through his body, through his feet. His feet were in the mud. And so when he looked to the left and when he saw this rock wall, it was completely embodied. It was completely physical. So um, we conclude from this that an image is a quasi-physical space because it was not a physical space. Jung in his physical space was in his uh, study in Kusnacht in, um, in Switzerland. But his imaginal body was in a real world in the same way we are in a dream. Because as we are in a dream, while dreaming, this is a real world. It is so real that you know that you're awake. You don't think you're awake. You know that you're awake, but you're dreaming. And so in this dream, the world around you is fully embodied. It is fully appears to be physical. That's why I call it quasi-physical. So to me, an image and I take dreaming as my paradigm for imagery, uh, an image is a quasi-physical space that surrounds us, and it's a world. And so uh, that's why I called it embodied imagination. I started calling it that is somewhere in the 90s, 
um, because imagination is always fully embodied. It also is true in neuroscience because um, uh, imagination and emotion and all that stuff goes first to the body before it goes to the cortex. So it's also in neuroscience, imagination is always embodied, emotion is always embodied. So that's why I called it embodied imagination. You use the term imaginal, and that is a term that is frequently associated with the philosopher Henri Corbin. Uh, we've yes. talked a lot about Corbin on this channel, but you had the great privilege of actually knowing him. Yes, uh, I was. It was an incredible. Was one of the great privileges of my life. Um, I was uh, 23, 24, 25 the, the, around in, in during that time when I knew him. I was um, secretary of a, uh, of a conference. It was called the Aronos Conference. The Aronos Conference was a very important um, alternative history of the Western intellect. You had great minds like Corbin, like Jung, like um, uh, Paul Tillich, and like um, uh, great philosophers and Gershom Scholem, you may have heard of. He uh, single-handedly unearthed um, Jewish mysticism. Um, uh, the, the great minds were there, and Corbin was one of them. And I happened to stumble upon that uh, by way of my wife then um, on that conference. And I went there, and um, that's where I met him. And for some reason, he took a liking to me and um, started seeing me privately. And we started to talk about um, what was happening in my imaginal life. And he was very interested in my imaginal life. Imaginal means, according to him, he coined the word, um, he didn't want to use the word imaginary anymore because the word imaginary means that something is not real. Uh, imaginal is the reality of imagination. So that these images are real events. They are real events taking place. And he, of course, got, got that from the visionary tradition. In the visionary tradition, the visionary goes into a real world. It is not a physical world, but it is a real world. And it was not yet a time where everything was material and the only reality was material reality. It was a time before that. It was more in the Neoplatonic era in like the 12th, 13th century. And that, that's the kind of mystics that he studied. And he therefore had to have, he had to find a new word. And that word was imaginal. That means the reality of the imagination, the, the adjective that conveys the reality of imagination. And I was incredibly lucky. And we talked about my dreams and he explained to me what, um, what the uh, the white city was the white city is that city of imagination and um i learned way too much <laughs> and it took me a lifetime to integrate i want to clarify something because i may have misunderstood his teachings all along i always assumed that there was a distinction between the imaginal and the imaginary and yes. I, I think you're suggesting uh, that Corbin would regard all of it as imaginal. No, 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 no. He needed a word that was different from imaginary because imaginary means unreal. And um, so he needed a word that conveyed that something is both imagination and real. 
but he does see that there are imaginary things. I mean, um, you um, you can imagine things that are um, that are not truly there. And I think, for instance, the whole world that Walt Disney creates is an imaginary world. And uh, when you go to Disney World, you go to an imaginary place. Um, so everybody there knows that it's not real, but the word imaginal means that you are an imagination, like in a dream, and everything around you is real. So the, the word imaginal conveys the reality of imagination. My understanding of, of, of Corbin is that he began studying, I think is the 12th century Islamic mystic Suravardi, uh, who developed the uh, philosophy of uh, illuminationism. And, yes. uh, and felt that, that through, uh, um, the entering into the imaginal world, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure uh, Corbin believed that he had contacted Surovardi directly in the imaginal world and was receiving teachings directly from him that way. Yes. Well, that I cannot verify because we never talked about if he, um, met Sorvardi there, but yes, indeed, um, uh, the um, Sorvardi was a was a sheikh um, who a young sheikh who was able to move into these worlds and um, explore them, and um, uh, he the, the word in um, Arabic is alam al mithal. The word alam al mithal, the Corban uh, translated as the mundus imaginalis, the world of imagination. Uh, but he, it's a translation of the word alam al mithal, and um, Surawardi was using that word or, or to convey that he was moving into a reality that was beyond, and it was called Mount Kaf. Mount Kaf was the the border between the physical world and the imaginal world. World. Once you move through or uh, uh, through Mount Kaf or across Mount Kaf, you would get into this Alam al Mithal, and that was a real world where he had real encounters with real beings and um, brought those back to the physical world. Corbin was also very interested in Ibn Arabi. Ibn Arabi was one of the greatest mystics of all time in the 12th century, a little bit before Sorawardi. And um, he was also somebody who could travel in this in these worlds. And of course, you have to see that it's logical that that would come from Islam because the Prophet himself traveled in these realms and got a lot of the Quran um, from these realms. So the notion that that is a real world in which you can travel is very strong in Islam. And from a Jungian perspective, do you also consider it a real world? Oh, absolutely. I am in that way a phenomenologist, as I uh, spoke with you about last time. A phenomenologist believes in the reality of experience. And so I see that these are real experiences, an experience of what I do not know. I do not know what the experience is about, but I know that it's a real experience of a reality because the reality establishes itself around you entirely, as you can see in a dream. So, yes, I think it is a real world, and I think that it's a reality that is different from physical reality, but it presents itself as physical reality. 
in any case, it would seem as if this discovery that you and Jung and uh, Henri Corbin uh, came to realize sometime during the 20th century was well known uh, more than 800 years ago in Sufism. Oh, much longer, much longer. No, this is actually, um, this is in the Neoplatonic tradition, so you can already find it um, around the time of Jesus, um, Jesus Christ at his time of the time of the Messiah, there was already um, a whole um, a group of people that were traveling those worlds. So, yeah, no, it's at least 2,000 years old. And you've now developed techniques that people can use to explore their dream experiences by literally, if I, if I understand it correctly, going back into the dream. Correct. Um, so what I'm using is um, what is called flashback, flashback memory. Now, flashback memory um, naturally occurs in people who have been traumatized. So if, um, for instance, a soldier is on a battlefield and something explodes and comrades around fall, then when she comes back to um, to the civilian world and there is a loud noise, suddenly she's back in the battlefield. She can smell it. She can hear it. Her comrades are around. She's completely there. That is called a flashback. Now, so our brain is capable of doing flashbacks and we have developed techniques that you can artificially flashback into dreams, you can artificially flash back into memories so that they surround you again and you are back in, uh, as I call it, an image, a living reality that surrounds you and is imaginal. Well, somebody experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder sort of spontaneously goes into a flashback when a trigger occurs. I assume that in psychotherapy, your your clients are not triggered that way. How do you work with them to to accomplish that? So what I do is um, I first use narrative memory. People come with narrative memory of dreams. I was walking down the street and I saw a bicycle and then I went to a store and then suddenly there was a monster. That is a narrative, a story. Um, and uh, I use that story, and then I begin to slow down the story. I say, okay, you're walking down the street. Now slow it down and describe to me what is this street like? What is the light like? What do you see around you? Are there people around you? Are there other bicyclists around you? What do you hear? Can you smell anything? As you begin to engage all the senses then slowly it begins to slow down <clears throat> in the first place. And then what happens is that slowly the person begins to enter into that space and it begins to reestablish itself around them. And that's when I then start to help them move through that world and it becomes more and more real. It becomes more and more of an environment and then we are in a flashback. What I do then is um, I help them to get out of their habitual consciousness, which is the consciousness that we are normally in, that is the consciousness with which we um, uh, with which we pay our taxes and uh, talk to people, and it's our average normal consciousness that we are usually identified with. We call I call that. Um, uh, um, 
habitual consciousness uh, it's usually called ego in but i don't like the word ego it's um, it is too uh, it has been used too much and it doesn't say enough the word habitual consciousness says more it says that we are identified with habits of consciousness and so in the work on dreams that I do, I help people to get out of their habits of consciousness. And you do that by getting into other characters or into other presences, because you can get into the presence of um, the monster that you see in the store, or you can get into the presence of a bottle of milk you see in the store. Um, and we do that by way of acting techniques. And um, that's how I then help the person to move into the dream, into the flashback, and by way of flashback, then help them to move into non-self perspectives, non-habitual perspectives. It strikes me that the flashback itself, or even the dream itself, might last only a few seconds, but the process mm -hmm. of re-entering the dream, working through all of these issues, uh, seeing it from different perspectives, uh, I imagine that can take much longer. Um, you can do that for a matter of hours. Um, uh, when I started doing this in um, the late 70s, early 80s, um, I would work on dreams with people, uh, usually doing it in a group, um, for about three hours, three, three and a half hours on, on a single dream. And so you would spend a lot of time in the flashback. Um, we do that really by, by having the body involved. The more you get the body involved, the more it slows down because um, imagination, like for instance in a dream, moves really fast. The body moves much slower. So if we get you back into your body and if you begin to feel your body, everything begins to slow down. And in that process of slowing down, you can extend these um, flashbacks for hours. But it also suggests that uh, what we think of as normal human consciousness is is much vaster than uh, our habitual way of thinking about it. That uh, the dream world, if the, if the dream world is accessible to us like that, it, it suggests that uh, we carry our dreams around with us all the time and we don't realize it. Oh, absolutely. Because... Um uh, also, we carry our dreams around as we are awake, because when we are awake, there are uh, millions, if not billions of data coming at us, and we select maybe two, three thousand of them to create our reality. So that so we are constantly dreaming up our reality from all this input that is coming at us because um, uh, our reality is not a faithful representation of what is out there. It is what we experience and the experience is um, uh, relatively limited. So um, we are constantly, uh, by way of imagination, creating worlds. Uh, and that is um, already Kant said that, right? Kant in the um, 18th century was saying um, that uh, the imagination organizes all the sense perception into a world. And um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's an old notion that we are constantly in imagination. I think if if I understand Kant correctly, he he also seemed to suggest that our very notions of space and time are uh, products of our own consciousness. 
Yes, and um, and of therefore of uh, imagination and um, the uh, my my definition of consciousness um, is uh, awareness of awareness. So we are in the awareness of space and time, and then we become aware that we create this or that this is being created through us, and that's an awareness of the awareness, and that is consciousness. Because when you enter into a, a dream, as as you do so often with your clients, space and time are not the same as in in waking consciousness. Uh, well, often it is, uh, often it feels the same. Um, I think that um, uh, it feels very similar. The, the interesting thing, of course, is about uh, the dreaming imagination, is that everything looks very similar or the same as in waking consciousness because what is happening i think what i think is happening is that um and i'm not alone in that there's a long tradition um that uh dreaming uses the material of the day world as a costume in which to manifest itself because it needs to manifest and it needs a costume it needs a way of presenting itself and it uses your uh, what uh, Freud would call the day residues. It uses your day residues and your experience of the world while awake. It uses that at night in your dreaming to create a world that is an imaginal world. Personally, I wonder if a, a lot of uh, the similarity between the dream world and waking consciousness is a function of language, because language seems to be based on waking consciousness. I have the impression sometimes regarding my own dreams that uh, what I'm experiencing is completely non-human. It's as if maybe I'm an insect or something. It's, it's so mm -hmm. very different than normal waking life. Yeah, well, that's what I try to help people. When you become an insect in your dream, uh, that is what I'm trying to accomplish um, through embodied imagination by having the person shift out of, or having, if I would be working your dream, uh, uh, work to shift out of the Jeffrey consciousness into the insect that is flying about and by being able to feel the way that the insect is flying by beginning to sense the wings of the insect, by beginning to sense the, the presence of the insect, you suddenly become identified with the insect and then the world becomes completely different because you see it from the point of view of that particular insect. Yes, I think that in dreaming you can be very different um, beings, although on average, I mean, I have worked between 40 and 50,000 dreams. On average, I would say that people are usually uh, identified with their waking bodies. And I notice when you describe the insect, you use your own body a lot, like yes. like, like this. And, and then I, I gather your process really does involve getting the, the person uh, to create the sounds and the movements and other... Yes, but, in, in, uh, but not fully, right? It's not psychodrama. Um, I try to get people in there through micro movements. So I don't want them to start flapping their wings, but that to, to, to feel this just 
this uh, in 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 tiny little movements going throughout your body and as you sense that going throughout your body you can do much more precise mimicry than if you have to move your whole body through it so i do all the all the um, it's called mimesis or mimicry or imitation i do all the mimicry by way of micro movements and micro sounds and and to come back to what you're saying about words when you get deeper into dreaming words become very inadequate and then usually at a certain point and that is about i would say 80 percent of the work that i'm doing at a certain point people say i'm feeling something that i i can no longer describe this so I help them to stay in the feeling because the, the feeling state is more important than the words that come out of it. And then you can move a whole lot of work um, uh, beyond words because words only come up to a limit. There are people that can go very far with words, like, for instance, poets. Um, <clears throat> but most people at some point, the words stop and you have to just feel it and sense it and being in the body of it. How do you differentiate between a, a micro-movement and a gross movement? Well, a micro-movement um, feels uh, very subtle and highly differentiated. Um, and at the same time, the body moves very little. Um, so, for instance, if you... Um, uh, this is in, for instance, um, authentic movement. When uh, authentic movement was... Uh, was first discovered, I think, by Mary Whitehouse. Um, uh, what what she did was wait until there's anything that is an authentic movement, and it always begins with a micro movement. It always begins with a little twitch or a little movement, or but all is very small and very subtle, and that is how you move from the subtle realm into the gross realm. And when we talk about gross, we're talking about um, the philosophical word gross, not the teenage word gross. No, we're talking about the, 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 the philosophical difference between the subtle and the gross, between the subtle and the raw. Um, and um, so uh, by moving into that, then slowly um, she has, has us get into the bigger movements into the gross movements, but it starts out with the subtle body movements, the subtle movements, because um, in, in dreaming, you are in a kind of a subtle body. You're not in a physical body. Your physical body actually is paralyzed, right? In dreams, we have paralysis. And thank God we are paralyzed in a dream. Otherwise, we would do wild movements. And there are people to whom the paralysis leaves and they get into those wild movements. And it's very dangerous for their partners. But normally we are paralyzed. So the physical body is paralyzed. But the subtle body, through very subtle uh, senses, is there and is moving through the street and going through the dream world. And so I try to stay as close to the subtle body as I can. And therefore, I try to stay with very subtle movements. And that's what I call micro movements. I have heard of research. Uh, you may know more about it than I do. I've just read it in passing that when two people are engaged in a conversation such as we are now, the 
micro-movements of the two individuals begin to synchronize. I would think so, and I think that um, that happens through um, through mirror neurons. Um, I think that um, uh, I, I think that much many people in neuroscience believe in uh, mirror neurons. That is that um, you begin to mirror what you see like um when uh, it's it started it was discovered when somebody was eating a banana and what happened in the brain of the monkey was as if the monkey was eating a banana when he saw a banana being eaten so the whole body begins to move uh, in a way and behave in a way as if it is happening to them so um, through mirror movements, we slowly um, become attuned to each other. Uh, it's called entrainment. We become entrained to each other. And then we begin to um, move together and um, uh, in this, this very subtle way. And, and if you can um, be really good, it can become a dance. Well, it also strikes me that the therapist working through your process must, at some level, also enter into the client's Absolutely. dream. Yes, and we make very, we have very complicated terms about it, like transference and countertransference and projective identification. But actually, what it is is. Um, it is a constant attunement where we become like the other. And, um, yeah, and then you begin to see in the other things that are not in the other, but in self, and that's then the transference. Um, but, uh, the, the actual, um, process that is going on, I think, is this constant micro attunement that is, um, uh, mirroring each other, becoming like each other through these micro-movements. It strikes me, because of my own background in parapsychology, Robert, that entering into a dream such as you're describing isn't so different than if I were to work with a, a person, let's say, who had a near-death experience and go back into that experience Absolutely. with yes. them into the afterworld. You have to, um, uh, I, I always have to stress, I am a radical agnostic. So that means that I know nothing about ultimate things. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And so um, uh, when I go with somebody into an afterworld through a near-death experience, in, I don't know where I am. I don't know if I'm literally in an afterworld. I just know that I am in an experience. And I'm a phenom phenomenologist. So I'm in that experience and I help the person experience through it. And then the person may experience it as an afterworld. I don't know what it is. I just accompany them in that world. I know it's a real world. That's all I know that it's a real world, they're experiencing something that is entirely real, and I help them to to explore that reality. What that reality is, that's none of my business. Because otherwise, I, I work with people all over the world, and everybody has different metaphysics. So I could not work with people in other places if I had a very firm metaphysics. So my only metaphysics is I know nothing. And so then I go into the world of experience, and I believe that experiences are real, and, um, and then I begin to explore it. 
Well, it would seem to me, if I had access to your memories of having worked with 40,000 dreams, I, I would begin to form a, a map of what the uh, uh, inner realm, uh, whatever you want to call it, is all about. It, it's like a continent, I think. The interesting thing, of course, is that what we call inner world actually is not inner, but outer, right? The moment you get into a dream, you're in an outer world. So the whole notion of inner and outer becomes very confusing and you can barely use it anymore because as we move into what we call the inner world, you are in an outer world. You are in a world that surrounds you and it's all around you. You're not in a world inside, you're in a world outside. So that's one of the first thing that, um, that I have seen that is true everywhere. Um, and, uh, what is true everywhere is that people are in space, uh, in a space, usually in a place, usually in something more specific than just the experience of space. Um, and then in that world, through their habitual consciousness, they're usually experiencing their cultural um, their cultural identifications. So when, for instance, I work in Japan and I see a mother-in-law, then I know that this is a very different kind of person than if I encounter a mother-in-law in the United States or in Africa. Um, so the culture still moves around in the dream on the level of the habitual consciousness. But when you then move out of that habitual consciousness into non-habitual states, then you get something that is much more universal. Uh, then you get experiences that are, that are really fresh and that is an influx of whole new data. And what I have found is that almost everybody can do this. That's a very interesting thing. There are, um, uh, and what is very interesting to me is when I started doing this about 50 years ago, um, it was much more difficult for people to do this than it is for people now, especially the younger generations can do it really easily because we in 50 years ago, so I'm talking 1971, we're in a state where everybody was constantly interpreting things. So we were, were in a world of interpretation. This means that. And when we do a this means that interpretation, we move away from this to that. And I want to stay with this because this is what's happening. And it was very difficult to keep people with this, keep people with this experience. And we know nothing about this experience. Let's start with not knowing because... Um, because the problem with Freud and with Jung and with all of them is that they knew, right? Freud knew that the Oedipus complex was central. Uh, Jung knew that there was an anima and an animus and a shadow. I know nothing. And then you can go into it and you can let it be real and you don't interpret anything and it will start to self-manifest. Instead of that you try to grab and get a hold of it, it begins to self-manifest. And that's what I'm interested in. I am interested in the self-manifestation of dreams. That's fascinating. I, I have heard, I wish I could remember who wrote this, who, who maintained that what Jung called the collective unconscious is actually our outside world, our everyday waking experience. Nah, I don't know. I think that, um, what Jung calls, um, the collective unconscious, um, uh, I would call the imaginal world. 
And um, what Jung was uh, pulling attention towards is that there are so many similarities in different cultures. Now, of course, um, uh, many um, ethnographers have uh, told Jung and also still are saying, and they are correct, that he is overemphasizing the similarities and not enough the differences. And as you know, we've gone through a period of uh, 30 years of deconstruction where we were focusing on differences and not so much on the similarities. Um, and But there are similarities that move throughout cultures. And those similarities he called the structures of the collective unconscious. That's what he called the archetype. So that there are archetypal structures. Um, so in that he was um, uh, a structuralist like Levi Strauss. Um, and we've co come much further. This was like, yeah, this was Jung in the 1920s and 1930s. We are 100 years beyond that. But there's still something very interesting in the notion that there is a collective that is structured similar, similarly uh, the world over. Now, if I can jump around a little bit, I've, I've done a number of interviews with Charles Upton, a religious traditionalist who is critical of Jung and the theory of archetypes because he, he feels that Jung is trying to psychologize what is essentially a mystical reality, a reality of the divine. Well, that is Jung the interpreter, right? Jung has, has two sides. Um, one is where he's a phenomenologist and he's just uh, talking about the phenomena and that's the Jung that I follow and then there's the Jung that is the psychologist and the interpreter and interprets things psychologically that is more of a problematic Jung and I agree with the person that you were talking to um, but I think that um, we that I have a third position. I do not know what this is. I do not know what these worlds are. I don't know the metaphysics of that of that world. Um, uh, if it's a mystical experience, what it is as an experience, it's clearly a mystical experience. It is an experience that is an, a non-habitual experience um, of um, uh, ecstasis. The word ecstasis means out of. Um, out of the standing tradition, out of what you, where you are, you move ek stasis out into a new place. So in the mystical ecstasy and the my mystical movements, um, there is um, an experience that is real onto itself. That's what I think I agree with your interlocutor before. Um, I think that um, these experiences are real events and um, they should not be reduced to anything else than what they are. And what, what Jung and other psychologists do is they reduce them to something that we can understand and, um, and then make a logic out of that. That's called psychology. Um, but if you don't do psychology, but just stay with the phenomenology, with what is actually happening, what is actually taking place and what the experience is, then you satisfy both the mystic and the psychologist because you stay in the middle. Well, I can imagine that some of these dream experiences that you're working with, having worked with dreams a bit myself, can be extraordinarily powerful. And if you're entering into the dream with your clients or, or students, whoever they are, uh, you yourself are sub 
subjecting yourself to experiences that would be called mystical. Oh, absolutely. Um, so um, I think that um, when you get deeper into a dream, when you get deeper into the flashback, and when you move further and further away from habitual consciousness, it becomes like a mystical experience because you're no longer the explanatory principles that you had in your habitual world no longer pertain. So um, you are in a world that is therefore um, non-habitual and could be described as uh, mystical because you're deeply into the mysteries. And so what my work does is help people and myself included. That's why this work is an incredible privilege to do. Um, help people to get deeper into the mysteries, deeper into the mysteries of existence. And that's where I find that life is most alive. Well, I can imagine, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes a little bit, having worked with 40,000 dreams, you must have had many, many thousands of moments of ecstasy that you've shared with your clients. Yes, yes, uh, yes. And that usually, uh, there's, um, if, I, if I look at the way that I work with dreams, uh, usually I begin with a panic because I, my, all my understanding vanishes. And even though I've worked with all these dreams, I've not worked with this dream. So all my understanding vanishes and I fall. So my first, and I call it dream workers panic. I know nothing. I don't understand anything that's going on. I don't know. I don't know. Ah! And that sense is the beginning of a dream. And then as I get myself through that, by holding that state and knowing that I've gone through that state now 40, 50,000 times. So I can hold that state now and stay in that panic and at the same time keep moving. The deeper I move into the dream, at a certain point you get to that mystery. And once you're in the world of mystery, it's awesome. That's the only word for it. It's awesome. That's what we have the word awe from. Awe. And so it, it can be terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I mean, nightmares are terrifying. So when you move to very alien perspectives, perspectives that are far removed from habitual consciousness, they usually present themselves as terrifying. So I'm not saying that it's a wonderful world of um, Alice in Wonderland. Um, also, it's also that. But it is not just that. It's also a terrifying world. Well, even Alice in Wonderland had to face various uh, challenges yes 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 there's a lots of lots of challenges there and um and um what uh, as i told you before my my training analyst and from the man from whom i learned more than anything from anyone else james hillman um he would say that one of the big problems that we have is um, heroic consciousness um, that as a hero as an individual we have to move through all of this and we have to battle and all and that kind of heroic consciousness is a problem um, and uh, so there are many other forms of consciousness and ways of which in which we can move through this imaginal world that are not heroic that may be um, sneaky, that may be um, uh, yielding, that may be losing, that may be surrendering, all these kind of things that the hero doesn't like. Um, 
can be part of this world. And, and of course, uh, Joseph Campbell, who wrote Hero with a Thousand Faces, was very much into heroic consciousness. And Hillman tried to undo that, tried to show, no, this whole notion of the individual and the movement, the journey, a heroic journey of the individual, the night sea journey of the individual, that is just one archetypal pattern. It's a pattern that we love in the Western world because we are so-called individualists. Our collective notion of ourselves is individualist. It's a contradiction in terms, but that's what we feel. And so um, uh, this individualist notion comes with the hero and, and the heroic uh, consciousness. And, um, and that's a, a big problem, but I won't go there now. Well, that's a very interesting discussion. It does remind me of Odysseus, one of the archetypal yes. he heroes, who was also quite a sneaky guy. Oh, he was very sneaky, and uh, because he was uh, mercurial, right? He he was a, um, a son of Mercury. Not he was not a son of Mercury, but he was very mercurial, and um, that is a way to go. So the hero, the hero that we usually identify with is Mars, right? The martial hero, the one who co goes with the sword. If you Look at um, uh, at the Marvel comics, which I think is the current mythology that is uh, most um, makes most money. Um, that that mythology is full of heroes that are powerful men and women that are powerful with their swords and all that. There's there's one or two sneaky ones like Loki, but um, who was uh, sneaky already three thousand years ago, um, but. Mainly it is the one with the muscles and that can really wield the sword so that our hero is frequently martial. But in, in the dream world, my understanding is that if you're facing a, a monster or a demon of some sort, one, one of the best ways to deal with it is uh, let, let it devour you if it wants to. You'll survive. The problem if you do that is that you lose the intense fear that comes with it. Um, and part of the encounter with a monster is the fear. And so, therefore, I think that it's really important to feel that paralyzing fear that you feel when you encounter a monster. But then the next step is, um, and that could be like being devoured by the monster. No, uh, what, I, uh, what I would say is to help you identify with the monster, feel the presence of the monster until you become absorbed by the monster and become manifest as the monster. And then you can experience the interior life of that monster and the subjectivity of that monster. And then you get a whole lot of information that you never had before. That's why there are some people that love working with nightmares because you get, if when you get into those nightmarish characters like monsters, you get a um, you get a view of the world that is so different from your habitual view that because of that, you can change dramatically. I gather that pretty much all dream researchers and, and therapists understand that every character in the dream, maybe with some exceptions, is really an aspect of, of your own psyche. Yeah, I disagree with that. Um, because uh, that makes uh, my own psyche, the word my own psyche, as the overarching principle of which everything is a part. I don't know that. 
Um, I think the notion of my psyche is a problematic notion because it uh, it takes ownership of all these things that are happening to us in this world. Now, if you are walking down the street and um, you say, this is all part of me, then um, it would be a little megalomaniac. But we do it with dreams all the time. This is all part of me. I don't think so. I think that we are in a world, in a world that is other, a world that we experience as other, where we can communicate in that world. But what if there is any overarching principle, like my psyche, which is an overarching principle, if there's any overarching principle, I haven't seen it, so I don't know it. Um, I just know that this world presents itself as a world. And um, the notion that it's all part of my psyche is a Western individualist notion. Very interesting. So I guess if I had to categorize you philosophically, you're much more of a pluralist than a non-dualist. Yes, I am. Uh, well, the, uh, having been trained by Hillman, who was uh, very much uh, focusing on multiplicity, um, yes, I am uh, someone who feels that consciousness is distributed. It's distributed over many places. And when we are moving into dreaming, we're moving into distributed consciousness. And we can move into all these different places in distributed consciousness. And the more places we can contain at the same time, the more perspectives we can uh, can contain at the same time and hold on to at the same time, the more we expand. <clears throat> this expansion James Hillman called soul making. And so the soul making is the expansion of soul, the expansion of consciousness, actually, the expansion of consciousness by holding many different points of view at the same time. Which obviously, having entered into some 40,000 dreams, you've had plenty of experience with. I wonder if there are times in which you find that your clients also share each other's dreams. Well, there are, of course, uh, dreams that are very similar. Um, I have never seen... Um, uh, th I've never seen the same dream. I've always seen... I've seen many similar dreams. There's this, this, uh, this joke... Uh, there was a very famous uh, psychoanalyst in Hollywood who had all the stars in, in analysis, and um, like Marilyn Monroe, and his name was Greenson. And um, there were these two comedians that met each other in the waiting room because nobody knew who, of course, was in analysis, but they met each other in the waiting room. And they uh, got together and said... Um, we'll tell Greenson exactly the same dream. So the first tells the dream and Greenson writes it down. And the second tells exactly the same dream and Greenson stopped writing. And he turns around and he says, what's happening? And Greenson says, this is the third time today that I'm hearing this dream. <laughs> so um, I have never seen identical dreams. <clears throat> there are always slight differences. Many years ago, I interviewed a lady, Linda Lane Magalon, who wrote a book called Mutual Dreaming, in which she, she said people deliberately try to enter into each other's dreams. And she said, oh, it's, yeah. it's sort of like a party that uh, you, you find areas of overlap. 
Right. And um, people who do lucid dreaming uh, try to do that. They try to meet at certain points and enter each other's dreams. And some say that they're very successful. I don't have... I haven't had that in my practice. I know that people um, have experiences with that, of entering into others' dreams, um, but I have no experience with it. Except that you, as a therapist, enter into others' dreams. Oh, absolutely, completely. And that's what um, I enter into the flashback. And I am with the person in the environment, and I can feel things and sense things before the person tells it. Um, so we are in the same environment, uh, but that is an induction. I'm induced into their environment. Would you say that you enter an altered state of consciousness at that oh, point? The time, yes, um, because my habitual state of consciousness could never go there. That's why I panic in the beginning, because my habitual consciousness crashes, and then I am in an altered state. The altered state is being altered by the presence of the dream that is being presented to me and then in this altered state I move through that. Yes, I'm always in an altered state when I enter into a dream. Once I entered in, I'm in an altered state. Do you, uh, in that state, uh, feel that you can guide or direct the process or is it more like the process directs you? The process directs us. And uh, the, what I can do is stay next to the dreamer. Um, I am uh, not one step ahead of the dreamer. The moment that I get a step ahead of the dreamer, I lose the dreamer and I begin to interpret and I begin to um, uh, to make the process, um, it, to, to bend the process in a particular direction. So I try to stay next to the dreamer, experience it at the same time, and then together, the dreamer is the pilot, I'm the co-pilot, uh, and together we keep on moving and because I am more of an outsider in that world than the dreamer is, uh, because the dreamer once, when she had the dream was completely in that reality. So I'm a little bit outside of it. So I can see more and I have more experience with dreams than, um, than almost anybody who I work with. Um, and therefore I can say, well, maybe we should look at that. Um, do you think we should go in that direction? I think that something's happening over there. Let's look. And so I, I um, do help with, um, uh, with direction because of my um, ample experience. Now, earlier we <clears throat> talked about how there was something of an antecedent to your work when we look at the uh, Sufis of uh, 800 years ago or, or yeah. so. But did they actually work with dreams the same way, and the Sufis or the Kabbalists? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think that they their visionary visionary experiences are similar. I don't know how they worked with dreams. Um, I think that uh, the mystical dreams uh, they would work with very similarly, but they I don't think that. Um, no, I know that um, they don't uh, um, uh, change perspectives. So when um, when in a mystical journey, uh, the visionary meets, um, for instance, Khidr, the green spirit, that's the guide in, uh, in the Quran. Uh, when they meet Khidr, they don't become Khidr. They stay, they stay as somebody following Khidr. 
and being tricked by Hitler all the time. Um, but uh, what I would do is I would see if I could get into uh, the perspective of that Hitler character, which, of course, in Islam would be completely sacrilegious and they wouldn't do because you cannot get into that perspective. Um, but for me, since I don't have that metaphysics, I can get into the perspectives of the other. So what is different from what I'm doing is the perspective shift, moving into a perspective that is not the perspective of the narrator. Everybody in the, in the traditional visionary world stays in the perspective of the narrator. Well, by shifting perspectives, again, this is a very important part of your process because it breaks down the habitual consciousness. How, however, earlier you were telling me how if you're being chased by a monster, before you can become the monster, you really want to get in touch with your fear. Yes, because um, you your identified position the one that is in your body, the being in your body is the identified position. The identified position is experiencing fear. So um, if you go directly into the monster, you would bypass the fear and you would therefore bypass a whole important element of this world. Part of the element of this world is that it is also a world in which fear is very important. And, um, and we don't like fear. And we try to bypass fear and get away from fear. And many therapists try to help you to get away from fear. But fear is a very important piece of information. And uh, it moves through the body in a particular way. And it, it um, embodies you in a, in a, in a way that um, uh, makes you very alert. Um, it makes you um, very much on edge. It creates the survival force that that rises. So there's a lot of important stuff about fear you don't want to lose. So therefore, you first feel that fear, unless it's overwhelming fear, and then it's traumatic fear, and then you have to work with it in another way. But if it's non-traumatic fear, if it's a fear that doesn't completely shoot you off, traumatic fear um, ex explodes you out of the experience into a dissociated state. If we're not talking about that kind of fear, if we're talking about a manageable fear, then going into that first and experiencing it throughout the body is a very important element of the dreaming world and then go to the monster and then let yourself become identified with the monster. Then you have both the power of the monster and the fear at the same time. And between that, you get a reaction between all these different. That's what is very important in my work is that if you are in three or four identifications, have identified with three or four different um, perspectives in the dream, you hold them together. And as you hold them together, that what's happen what happens then, I call that a composite of states. In this composite of states, then you have a network of states and then something begins to develop where um, something new emerges. That's an emergent phenomenon. The emergent phenomenon is more than the addition of the states is not that you add the states, but the states become a network and, and that network creates something different. And that is why I'm so interested in alchemy, because that is what happens in alchemy as well, that if you hold different elements together, something new emerges, a new tincture emerges out of that. And that's why I wrote all these novels about alchemy that I just published.
So we're talking about therapy as a process of transmutation. Correct. Well, I would think that uh, the population of people who come to do dream work with you, uh, because you're a therapist, there you're going to have a high percentage of of people who have had early childhood traumas of one type or Correct. another. Correct, and that you work differently. So the way that I work that is, I start out with the shift of perspective. Um, so, for instance, and this is a, um, a case that I'm allowed to talk about. It was part of supervision. And um, uh, this was about a, a woman who experienced a rape and um, was completely dissociated because of that. So she could never have um, sexual experiences um, that she could really feel because the moment that it would start, uh, and this was with, uh, and she was in a very good marriage and um, loved her husband, but they couldn't get together because she would immediately uh, zone out. Um, so we have, she at a certain point said, I want to work that rape experience. And so what, what the, um, what the therapist did who trained with me and who I supervised is to help her to focus on a closet that was over in, uh, at the right, very sturdy closet. He, he, he helped her. She, no, it was she, she helped her to get into the perspective of that closet by feeling the sturdiness, the wood, the way the, 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 it was standing. And then as the perspective has shifted to the closet, then to begin to experience while the focus stayed on the closet, begin to experience what happens in another part of, in the other part of the room where the rape is happening, but keep the focus and the perspective away from the perspective of the one who is experiencing it directly. And by that indirect experience, and then by going into a perspective shift first, it becomes, it becomes possible to slowly begin to let in this experience and begin to digest it. Because the experience is not digestible when you look straight on, but when you look at it from peripheral vision, then you can begin to digest it. So that's the way that I work with trauma. That's very interesting. Uh, I don't think I have any more questions, but let me let me ask you: Have I missed anything? Uh, no, I think that we pretty much went into um, embodied imagination and what it means and um, the techniques. And now that we brought in the trauma as well, I think we're pretty much complete. Well, Robert, this has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Once again, it's very profound work that you're doing. I can tell that you do it with a great deal of energy and authenticity, both of which I think are important in therapeutic work. So uh, it's been a joy to be with you today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me again. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.